0: Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, how many of you have heard the story in our gospel reading today in Mark 10 of the rich young man? Let me see a show of hands. Maybe all of you. um, Not all of you, but most of you. And, you know, the story is told in all three of the synoptic gospels, as we call it, the technical name for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Luke includes a hint that the young man is not just rich. He is an archon. In some sense, he is a ruler of some kind. He has some kind of local authority, maybe just simply because he is rich. So some people refer to him as the rich young ruler, and that's why, because Luke, the historian, gives us that little piece. So you've heard of this uh, rich young ruler. How many of you have heard of Young Boy Never Broke Again? Raise your hand if you've heard of Young Boy Never Broke Again. Well, you did because you were in the first service. (laughs) Seriously, nobody? Okay, interesting. I heard about him just this week, so don't feel bad. His latest album just exploded to the top of the billboard charts, and would you believe that's the fourth time in two years that he's been at number one? So where have you been? right? His music has been streamed more than six billion times since last September, and on on YouTube he has nearly 10 million subscribers, which is none of you, apparently. One bonus track, though, his story is interesting. One bonus track on the new album was recorded over the phone from jail, where he awaits trial for federal gun charges. Several years ago, he was involved in a drive-by shooting, and he was charged with two counts of attempted murder, he goes by the name YB, uh, according you know, to his fans. And he pled to reduced aggravated assault charges and was able to go free. Um, not long after, he was arrested again for body slamming his girlfriend and again pled to reduce charges and went free. And he was free until March, when a high-speed chase and gun possession led to another arrest. Atlantic Records has awarded him with a $2 million recording contract, and they put billboards up in larger cities to promote uh, the latest album called Sincerely Kintrell. His name's Kintrell Galden. And so while he sits in jail awaiting trial, the money floods in on the streaming services. Young boy's manager said some really interesting things. Uh, He compares him to other controversial artists like Tupac Shakur. You heard of Tupac? Okay, figured you had. Um, He described his appeal this way. They break the rules... They do it their own way, and the people pick that. There's nothing anyone can do to stop it. Now, you might be wondering, why is he comparing young boy never broke again to the rich young ruler? But I think it's actually a pretty interesting comparison, and I'll sort of circle back to it a bit later. But in the eyes of his contemporaries, the rich young ruler, his prosperity meant he was evidently favored by God. He or his family had done and were doing something right, something righteous even. And his wealth had earned him status and influence. And it was perceived that he deserved this, right? But in the eyes of young boys' contemporaries, being an unapologetic and violent, gun-toting misogynist deserves millions of fans and a multi-million dollar contract from, interestingly, ironically, an industry that also claims to have a really you know, high, high-minded morality. It's not exactly a sentimental rags-to-riches story as Young Boys Never Broke Again's uh, name implies. But here's where the comparison to me is really interesting. And we realize that both of these very different young men are both bankrupt. They're bankrupt. They're both rich in ways that ultimately impoverish them. In Mark 4, Jesus said, The deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, the gospel. Wealth and all that accompanies it actually, according to Jesus, it has an innate potential to entangle and to strangle the truth. And so maybe for some of us it's hard to be sympathetic, though most of us are admittedly wealthier than 90-some percent of the rest of the world. But surprisingly in this story, how does Jesus respond? He responds with a kind of sympathy that maybe we don't feel. And there's an emotional thread in this story, and that's the thread that I want to pay attention to this morning. Here's the thread. I'll just give it to you in, surprise, surprise, again, three different moments, points. Jesus' love in verse 21. That's the first one. The man's sorrow in verse 22, and then the disciples' amazement and astonishment in verse 24. That's the thread I want to follow. But before I do, we need to pay attention to where this story is seated, the literary context here. The account fits into a larger flow of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom and about self-denial. Humility. It comes immediately after the call to receive the kingdom as children in verse 13, and it comes just before the third major prophecy of Jesus' passion, which sharpens the demand to follow Jesus on the way to the cross. The whole prospect of entrance into the new kingdom, the new way of the kingdom, relies on self-denial in faith, in trust in him. Jesus upends their conventional wisdom. He upends every idea about religious status or human achievement. Jesus was clear that our default value systems rarely align with how God is bringing justice and salvation to the world he loves. Leadership in the kingdom doesn't look like the world's version. So here's the first emotional thread, as I mentioned. Verse 22. It says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Why? Now, the easy answer is kind of prosaic, right? Well, Jesus loves everybody. But there's more here for us to pay attention to. I think the story calls us deeper. Why does he love this young man and how does he actually love him? From our angle, it might be easy to just look and villainize just to, you know him, knowing how the story plays out right. We might villainize him as just another pious, self-absorbed rich guy among all the oppressors and agents of exploitation in their very classist culture. He's self-important and he wraps himself in money and status. And he knows well enough to come and and to maybe seemingly put on this show of openness to Jesus. We might be cynical and see him that way. We have every reason to believe that if he's followed, taken the law seriously, he's paid attention to it, that he would have given alms to the poor. So he's, you know, uh, he's not someone who is blind to the poor. And we have no reason to believe his wealth was ill-gotten. He wasn't a crook, as far as we can tell. He didn't seem to be strutting around like a Pharisaical peacock, right? You know, instead, what does he do? He addresses Jesus with honor, as he would a rabbi, and then he kneels before him. So we might feel a little sympathetic because of that. And Peter would have seen this moment and then conveyed this to Mark, who who likely was his scribe, and so Mark writes it down. Peter sees it, and what Peter apparently sees in Jesus' face, he sees in Jesus' response, he sees the love in his eyes. And he wants to make sure this gets across in the story. But I don't think the man's earnestness or his respect... For Jesus, or why, uh, that's not why Jesus loved him. The story seems to be telling us that Jesus looked at him and saw poverty. He saw what he lacked, he saw the threat to his soul, despite all the good works that he's been doing since his youth. This big castle that he's built, financial and moral, in his own soul. Jesus sees, Jesus feels even the one thing he really lacks, freedom. Jesus sees that what the rich young man believes he possesses has possessed him. The disciples would have looked at him as the epitome of everything that's right in their world, his perfection and his prosperity. And some of us might, as I said, see him in the, as the epitome of everything that's wrong with the world, this self-righteous moralist with power and privilege and wealth who doesn't really know anything of the margins or of the weak or of the suffering. He doesn't really know anything about it. But Jesus loves him. How does Jesus love him? Or maybe better put, in what way does Jesus love him? He tells him the truth. He tells him the truth. He says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Jesus offers him the way of freedom. It's a painful one. It's a particular one for him. But the only one that Jesus knows will work. The one that will actually answer his actual question about how is it that I will get what I know deep down I'm lacking. How can I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you need me. You need me. And it's a choice with real world consequences. The Lord, we know, looks not at the outward appearance, but on the heart. And what does Jesus see? He sees that this man's great wealth is wrapped around his heart like a tumor. So Jesus calls for radical surgery, the way out of the poverty of self-sufficiency, out of the deceptively narrow priority of the self. And I'll tell you this. If Jesus had to sit on one of those cold metal stools in a bleached out concrete building, looking at young boy through an inch and a half of glass, he would love him too. He would want his freedom. And he would tell him the truth. So, what of the response of this rich young ruler? This emotional thread now belongs to him. What happens? He's sad. He's disheartened. He feels the weight of impossibility in his own heart. There's no way. He feels sorrow, it says. We get a succinct answer as to why, right there in the same verse 22, just says, He had great possessions. And Jesus was right, as it turns out. He had too much to lose. It was too much to ask. It was not what he wanted to hear. It's not why he came. Jesus offends his mind to reveal his heart. His possessions were his whole life, as it turns out. The present and future that he was actually relying on. His possessions were not only validation, they were also his hope. So he walks away. Even this vast moral wealth that he had, that was clear from the account, all the obedience from his youth, his perceived perfection was just simply not enough. And you know, Jesus actually started working on him in verse 17, if we pay attention here. He says, you know, the the rich young ruler comes, he says, good teacher. And Jesus, you know, latches onto that. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except the Father. Father. Unless this young man think that the holy man in front of him, this rabbi, Jesus, was really just about moral instruction and can give him that last nudge into absolute self-confidence, Jesus does what? He shifts the whole foundation. There's not one more thing he can do in all his competence, in all his wealth, to button the kingdom up for himself. It will require faith. And faith, my friends, means always self-denial. A path of following and going where you might not want to go in the short term. The only way this particular man could enter by faith was to walk where not he, but the Lord is actually in the lead. And now, you know, a few years back I had lunch with a pastor of a very wealthy congregation, and I asked him how he led in that particular context. And he said this, he said in generalization, wealthy people generally value two things, excellence and being well-rounded. And I thought, you know, I get that, and there's nothing wrong with excellence and being well-rounded. But he went on to explain that he teaches how the gospel leads to true excellence and true well-roundedness. And as I listened to him talk, it began to sound to me like all support and no challenge. Kind of a soft endorsement, sort of unchallenged endorsement of their existing values. And I left scratching my head a little bit, thinking, you know, probably a tough context in some ways. And I left thinking of the rich young ruler, wondering if that's exactly what he was hoping for from Jesus. How to have it all with a little extra help from the rabbi. And saying that, I am not suggesting, this passage does not suggest itself to be universal. Um, It's not prescriptive, calling all wealthy people to sell everything. It doesn't. But what we do get from this story, among other things, is the fact that Jesus is not an addition. Wealth is not an exception. And moral excellence, no matter how good you are or how good you think you are, He's not saving. You can't do enough. Jesus is only interested in new creation. Whatever it takes. That is the ultimate expression of love. To set us free. And guess what, friends? He might offend you to get you there. And whatever your bottom line looks like, Jesus must be Lord of it. Think about this. What's worse than an obvious threat to your soul? A not-so-obvious threat to your soul, right? What's worse than that? A threat to your soul that our culture and our communities believe is more a blessing than a liability. And that's part of how wealth can be so deceptive because it has a social and a systemic reach. And we need, by our knowledge of the kingdom, to know its capacity for doing that, its capability for doing that, and ultimately in embroiling us in it and making us complicit. So this rich man, in his particular story, he walks away, right? And Jesus says this to his disciples in verse 23. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples aren't rich, but this messes them up big time, which is the third piece of our emotional thread here they're amazed in verse 24 they're blown away they're exceedingly astonished it says in verse 26 if a rule following well rounded rich man cannot be saved then who has hope at all Jesus looked at them and he said with man it is impossible but not with God that is good news for all things are possible with God Because he's flipping it over, isn't he? Isn't he saying that you thought that God could even save the the poor wretch? But in fact, I'm saying to you that God can even save the rich, righteous man. Because it's always going to require God and only God for this kind of salvation the quality of it and the eternity of it, the lasting nature of it, despite our failures our misconceptions. Jesus says it's more than possible for a rich person to enter the kingdom, but it will only be because of God's wealth and God's work. The Lord makes it possible for anyone to be able to understand that they are entirely dependent on the lavishness of God, making up for their admitted insufficiency. How hard is it for any of us, let's be honest, to acknowledge that we are insufficient. Maybe in some areas, but in others, it can be very difficult. How hard is it for us to treasure Jesus above all else, to let him take the lead in every area of our lives? How hard it was for a Pharisee like Nicodemus to realize that his religious diligence still falls short and that he must be born again. How hard it was for Paul, a blameless Jew, to realize his violent zeal for the law was actually making him an enemy of God. How hard it is for an intelligent person to realize their reach will always exceed their grasp. And they must embrace and trust what Paul says is foolishness to the wise of the world. We know the danger of wealth is double-edged. Whether it's material wealth, or it's moral wealth, or it's intellectual wealth. First, the wealthy or the well-rounded could lose themselves in themselves. We all can, in spiritual poverty. That's a tragedy for them. And second, a world crafted and controlled ultimately, subtly by the prideful and powerful, it does become an unjust reality ultimately, against which Amos in our reading today and virtually every other Old Testament prophet cries out, it's not just a tragedy for them, it's a tragedy for everyone. But there was an answer to whom the prophets were looking. And he's standing here in this story that we're paying attention to today. Standing there with love in his eyes for this self-preserving rich young ruler is another rich young ruler. Have you thought about that? Who, according to Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to cling to, to hold on to, to be entitled to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says elsewhere to the Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet For your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The call to follow Jesus, friends, is not to somehow earn or live up to what he's done or to add to it. The call is to respond to the love in his eyes and in his body and in his blood that he's given for us. The response is to trust in his riches. Even when we, uh, you know, we can feel that cost in our own bodies or even in our own bank accounts. And that's why Peter can't be silent in the last bit of our reading today. Maybe we'll tack on a fourth little emotion because, you know, Peter, he feels anything. He's got to talk about it. That's some of you, isn't it? <laughs> what about us then, Lord? What about us? We're giving up everything. And I love Jesus' answer. It's powerful. When he becomes our Lord, our treasure, when we find wealth in the world he's making, our future is not only a lavish inheritance, but the blessing includes, he says, the hundredfold riches of life together as a new kind of humanity. Of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children and homes and land. We get to be wealthy together in Christ if we will see it as such but with persecutions, Jesus says. It's not going to be easy. But if we want what Jesus wants, it will be rich. As I reflected on this, I wondered about myself, of course. I wondered how important this kind of community wealth is for us in America, where they're really, you know, despite the janglings of some, we don't know what real persecution is. We lack the persecutions that unite us as they do our brothers and sisters in other times and in other places around the world. Maybe we don't want or need this kind of wealth. And maybe that's a place in our hearts that this story needs to go to do its work. Maybe this is a place in our hearts that Jesus is looking in love. How are we defining the wealth belonging to Jesus? I know some people who've been truly marginalized or outright rejected by their families for the faith or for other reasons. And I know that some of them and maybe some of you have found that community and that wealth, that village. And I wonder, though, this is what crossed my mind as I was trying to button this word up here. I wonder if we see ourselves as not only potential beneficiaries of this community and this wealth, but also is the very gift that Jesus is giving to others. We can so easily find ourselves asking what's in it for me here. And in that are echoes of the rich young ruler, right? And I wonder if we remember that like Jesus and only because of Jesus, we're actually in it for others. We are a treasure to one another. And we are what Jesus is giving to one another. And it's only by Him and because of Him and as we follow Him that that can even be close to the vision that He has for us. The Lord being our helper. Jesus promises that none of us who trust in Him will find ourselves bankrupt. Never broke again. And the question is always this, and I ask it almost every Sunday. Do we believe it? Lord, help us to believe it. Lord, I confess, we all could probably easily confess that we have not surrendered every part of our life to you. But thank you for the story. Thank you for the look of love in your eyes when we don't get it and we ask dumb questions as they turn out to be. And when we lack the courage and the faith to follow you, we thank you that you love us. We pray that you would help us We pray that you would help young boy never broke again. We pray that you would help his fans. We pray that you would help us, God, in the violence in our own hearts and even the criminality in our own pride that hurts the world you love. Thank you today that we get to confess together and thank you today that we get to open empty hands to receive again the love that you have for us in the body and blood and we get to do it together.